You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Understanding God's Righteousness, episode number 35 of this wonderful series. This episode is called Education in the Kingdom Age. What will be the spiritual education focus of the restored kingdom of God, which will be the fourth divine dispensation? What is the connection between sin and the physical effects of sin? Why has kingdom, God's kingdom law been so marginalised by the enlightened community even to this point? How will God make his law finally honourable to the sake of his righteousness? We've been considering the question as to why God changed the forgiveness ritual from an often repeated bloody animal altar offering during the patriarchal and first kingdom ages to the baptism ritual that was only performed once during the ecclesial age and then we'll change it back in the millennial kingdom to that often repeated bloody animal altar offering. Now we determined the primary educational focus for the first three divine dispensations with their separate priesthood structures, their separate divine laws and rituals. That primary focus for the patriarchal age was personal righteousness. But then the first kingdom age, we see a distinct shift to an extreme emphasis on transgressional sin. This progressive combination emphasized the necessity for the faithful and personal pursuit of God's righteousness, but then balance that with the impossibility of perfectly performing God's righteousness in our lives with that first kingdom age's focus on transgressional sin. This led us to the ecclesial age, where another dimension in this spiritual education is emphasized. That despite the fact that the law burdened us with our incapacity to personally earn salvation, that we can overcome that personal righteousness shortcoming that was so emphasized by kingdom law on the basis of imputed righteousness, extending to the enlightened faithful on the basis of grace through faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. This imputed righteousness can raise our level of um, uh, our acceptability level to God above and beyond the incomplete nature of our works and deeds in our individual personal demonstrations of God's righteousness. Now let's consider that educational flow. Both in each part and the progressive whole. First, the value God places in personal righteousness um, is demonstrated in Abel and Noah, Job, and Abraham, and Lot, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Second, 
We are not permitted to presume an exalted value on the basis of our personal demonstrations of God's righteousness, as the law was introduced with an entirely new priesthood structure spotlighting our failures, making sin exceedingly sinful, as Paul explains to the Romans. Despite possibly feeling pretty good about ourselves on the basis of personal righteousness, as Job did, objecting to the rightness of his incredible suffering, the law crushed that divine value presumption afforded in the patriarchal age. Now, this two-stage progression schoolmastered us, emphasizing the need for a savior, someone to compensate for our shortcomings, despite our best efforts. This is the issue of imputed righteousness, that compensating factor for our shortcomings, at least in the context of that personal righteousness, uh, those shortcomings that were so powerfully emphasized in kingdom law. This is a perfect educational progression that highlights the comprehensiveness of our Creator's righteousness. He respects and appreciates our pursuit of his image and likeness through our pursuit of personal righteousness. But he wants us to know that although he values that pursuit of his righteousness, that our efforts will never be good enough. That was the primary purpose of kingdom law, to demonstrate our incomplete, uh, our complete, I should say, complete incapacity to save ourselves. But then, in the third educational dispensation, he emphasizes his willingness to share the wonderful righteousness of his perfect son to anyone that his son may choose. Whoever his son ends up individually selecting to be his bride. Whoever will be chosen from among the enlightened community to become the saints, so that he will not, of course, be all alone in all of creation after death is eliminated. Now, this is a perfectly sensible educational progression. Uh, when I was in high school, my math class was uh, first algebra in my, in my freshman year. The next year, my math education was geometry in the 10th grade. In my junior year, that math education was algebra two and trigonometry. In my senior year, it was analytics and physics. But in my first year of college, it was calculus. Now, that was a very logical educational progression. Imagine how impossible that developing education would have been if it started with calculus when I was only 14 years old and ended with much more elementary first-year algebra. We don't start our education at the top of the stairs. We have to climb, to ascend toward the heavens, one stair at a time from the bottom, through the education process, no matter what the educational discipline may be. That is also the divine pattern. So why will we be returning to kingdom law? Or at least most of it, uh, there's definitely gonna be some modifications when Christ returns and restores that kingdom.
Well, the foundational reason is for educating mankind about the righteousness of God. We, we read that in the uh, kingdom prophecy in Isaiah 42, that God will magnify his law and make it honorable for his righteousness' sake. But kingdom law has not been considered honorable by the enlightened community since it was first imposed at Sinai, and certainly not today, just before it's about to become globally enforced. A very common expression by teachers in our enlightened community today is that we are not under the law of Moses, and why should we even spend time considering it? One forcefully expressed statement at a New England fraternal gathering just a few years ago was that we are not under the law of Moses and never will be again. Now, that was one of those gaping mouth moments for me. Uh, the only way we'll never operate under what is referred to as the law of Moses ever again is if we perish forever at the conclusion of Christ's judgment. The law of Moses or more appropriately, those laws of God from the first kingdom age will be taught and enforced throughout all of creation in the millennial kingdom. So if that statement were actually true, that we'll never personally, that we'll personally never again be under the law of Moses, then we're going to have to be rejected by Christ and perish forever. Now, as a side note, if you would like to know about how kingdom law will educate mankind about God's righteousness, I would recommend reading the seven years of articles that were published in the Logos magazine beginning in March 2008 that uh, were entitled Vocational Training for an Immortal Priesthood. Uh, these can be accessed at the spiritsword.net website under the menu name by that same vocational training for an immortal priesthood. You can cons consider that monthly series individually and collectively, but they most definitely show how we can learn more about our Creator's righteousness by considering His kingdom laws from both the previous kingdom and the soon-to-be-restored kingdom. I particularly found the modifications in kingdom law between the two ages to be absolutely fascinating such as the significant redesign of the temple, the new layered dimensions of that fourth Christ altar of burnt offering, the two-stage priesthood, the changes in the Sabbath day offerings, and particularly the absences, such as the absence of the second harvest feast, the Feast of Weeks. Well, so any, anyway, kingdom law, so often refer, referred to today as simply and often disparagingly as the law of Moses, is definitely not considered honorable by our current last generation of the ecclesial age. As just as an anecdotal uh, observation, I remember a time when my mother and father were visiting and my dad was on the couch doing his daily readings. And I was across the room having my morning coffee at the kitchen counter. My father said in an objecting tone, I don't understand why we have to read Leviticus once every year. 
Without even taking a breath, I excitingly responded, I know exactly what you mean. I wish we had to read Leviticus three or four times every year. It's just so fascinating and exciting to read. I have a hard time stopping with just a single day's reading. My father's response was to sigh and shake his head. But sadly, he did not ask for any reasons why I responded that way. So, no, God's kingdom laws are not revered with honor at this time, just before the restoration of those laws and rituals. But the honor of those laws was not observed either at the beginning or the end of the first kingdom age. The equality rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram objected to the new priesthood structure, and particularly God's appointment of Aaron as the high priest. God responded to this disrespect for his kingdom law by burying those men and their families alive and incinerating the Levites trying to usurp the priesthood role and then killing another 14,700 Christadelphians who objected to God's execution of those wonderful brothers and their families, with, of course, the exception of Korah's sons, who refused to identify themselves with their corrupting father's uh, understandings, the corrupting understandings of his father, their father. But after more than another 1,500 years, we come to the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. The law was considered a burden. That kingdom law was not considered honorable, but burdensome. That burden presumption was highly emphasized by the abundance of ritual modifications that they imagined and imposed, um, that at least the religious leaders did. This was why Jesus was attacked so frequently for healing on a Sabbath day. The enlightened community leaders saw the laws of God as a burden that had to be suffered, not an experience to be enjoyed. Jesus highlighted their hypocrisy by referencing how those leaders of the enlightened community would take care of their beasts on a Sabbath, but would not support the unburdening of the crippled or blind or leprous on a Sabbath day. He also highlighted how they circumcised on a Sabbath day. So how could they object to making his making a man whole on a Sabbath day? They completely misunderstood the honor embedded in God's kingdom laws. God objects to the enlightened community's historical disrespect to his law in Hosea 8 and verse 12, where we read, I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. But in the soon-to-be-restored kingdom, that law will be magnified and made honorable for the express purpose of educating mankind in the matter of God's righteousness. So, therefore, how does this forgiveness ritual rotation emphasize God's rightness? Well, let's review that progression again and recall the necessary fourth educational focus as well as considering how the correct understanding is going to have to be demonstrated three-dimensionally, with validations coming from indirect considerations as well. Because after all, God manifestation, multitudinous singularity, harmony, 
is the foundational divine principle that controls everything. So first, we have the emphasis of the value of personal righteousness in that patriarchal age. Then we have the balancing and very humbling emphasis on transgressional sin. Thirdly, we have the exalting and highly relieving emphasis on imputed righteousness on the basis of grace that compensates for our personal righteousness failings. The fourth lesson is the issue of salvation itself, which is the ultimate cleansing of sin nature. This is the full range of the principle of atonement. One of the great corruptions evident in our last generation of the ecclesial age within the enlightened community is the limiting of the principle of atonement to exclusively sin forgiveness, insisting the single application of sin is transgression and that any application of sin demands repentance or does not qualify to be called sin. The full understanding of what constitutes atonement includes a cleansing from our sin nature, which is what we call salvation and can also be referred to as immortalization. This is the very first issue to be addressed in the kingdom age, the judgment and the saving of the saints, awarding that holy clothing of immortal nature that covers, swallows up the unclean mortal nature that was righteously imposed in the Garden of Eden due to sin corrupting that previously very good entire creation order. We have to be born again into a spirit nature. As Jesus taught Nicodemus uh, when that rabbi came to Jesus in the dark in more ways than one. This first act of salvation, the eternal cleansing um, of the unclean physical nature of the saints, will become the educational focus of the restored kingdom law when Christ and the saints will rule the world. This issue of highlighting the physical uncleanness of sin nature will be emphasized by that holy, immortal nature of Christ and the saints. But of course, that, that's only the beginning. Kingdom law will serve as the chain that binds the four sin icons, uh, limiting sin's influence in the world, as we read in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. It is God's laws, highlighting his righteousness, that will restrain the power of sin in both sin applications during that millennial kingdom. That restraint of transgressional sin will result in a complementary restraining of the physical effects of sin, 
Now, we've noted this relationship in the past. Um, the prophecies about life in the kingdom are vastly different from today. <laughs> well, because today, sin is not just unrestrained. It's at a stage of acceleration that is astounding. Uh, first, let's establish this relationship between physical suffering and sin and understand both its extensive and its limited associations. Now, due to the fir that first contradiction of God's righteousness in the Garden of Eden, human suffering and death were introduced into that then degraded creation order. God imposed pain to be experienced in the birthing process. Frustration and sweat were imposed on man in his pursuit of providing for himself and his family. Disease could not possibly have been part of what God declared to be a very good creation order before sin. Under the laws of that first kingdom of God, and in that second education stage, one would have to participate in a sin offering after being healed from leprosy and after being healed from a bodily issue in the pursuit of atonement for those previously sick. And there was no requirement of repentance, just cleansing. The healed leper had to offer a sin offering and a burnt offering on the eighth day of the ritual in order to rejo rejoin the community to, it, to achieve an atonement. This is described in detail in Leviticus 14. The person healed from a bodily issue also was required to present a sin offering and a burnt offering, and again, on the eighth day of their ritual to achieve an atonement. Let's just review that in Leviticus chapter 15, uh, picking up at verse 13. And when he, meaning he that is um, cleansed, well, he that hath an issue is cleansed. When he that is, hath an issue is, is cleansed of his issue, then he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes and bathe his, bathe his flesh in running water and shall be clean. And on the eighth day, he shall take to him, to him two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and give them unto the priest. And the priest shall offer them the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make an atonement to him before the Lord for his issue. These are divinely appointed associations between disease, sin, and atonement that are concluded on the eighth day. But this sin category is not directly identified with transgressional sin. No repentance is ever required by God for suffering with leprosy. Uh, the only requirement is a cleansing procedure through a sin offering upon being healed. The final stage of atonement being scheduled for the eighth day is a shadow prophecy. For when all disease and death and human suffering due to the presence of the principle of sin will be eliminated in that eighth divine day after the conclusion of the millennial kingdom, the Sabbath kingdom, 
It will be that eighth day will be the day after the Sabbath, just as Jesus was immortalized at the beginning of the day after the Sabbath. Uh, That's Sunday night, just after the Sabbath sunset. Just like the first fruits of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed Passover were waved to heaven on the day after the High Sabbath, which was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As we've noted a number of times, those six alphanumeric Greek letters in the name of our Savior add up to 888, to shadow prophesy of the three salvation events in the Creator's plan, with that last salvation event taking place in the eighth divine day, since the curse of sin and death and disease corrupted a previously very good creation order. order. The ritual identification of death with sin was the cleansing of the death defiled on the seventh day with the ashes of the red heifer mixed with running water. It's interesting how these three uncleanness conditions are reversed by seven and eight day rituals. The defilement of the touch of death was reversed on the seventh day but cleansing from leprosy and a bodily issue were reversed on the eighth day. Hopefully we will recall from previous lessons the powerful seven and eight pattern in relation to resurrection that, that fills scripture that we saw in the two resurrections of Jesus on the seventh and eighth days and the two promised resurrections of the saints in the seventh and eighth divine days, the seventh and eighth millenniums in the Creator's plan. This association between the cleansing from unclean conditions through a sin offering is just another example of the same pattern. But this particular observation was not one of the many pattern applications that we did reference previously. During our last generation of the ecclesial age, we have seen the power of sin grow exponentially in the global society dominated by the sons of men. The immorality, the violence, the wars, the incredible capacity for destruction through atomic bomb missiles and biological weapons. We've witnessed a growing disdain for truth, with this generation being defined as the post-truth era, even by the sons of men. Along with this sin acceleration, we've seen an exponential increase in new diseases. AIDS, or HIV, became prominent in the 70s and in the 80s, reaching epidemic proportions. A Legionnaire's disease, a very very severe form of pneumonia, and very deadly, was discovered in the 70s. We now have an epidemic in children being born with autism. We're told by the World Health Organization that there's now a 50% chance for contracting cancer at some point in our lives. And now we have this global pandemic resulting in a similar quarantining that was required in the laws of the first kingdom of God just for touching the dead. Another validating issue in this understanding is how physical uncleanness, like disease, is contagious. 
Whatever was divinely unclean under kingdom law was not only unclean, but an uncleanness host capable of making other things and people unclean and passing along that capacity to be yet another uncleanness host. But the status of being divinely clean, also known as holiness, was not contagious. One had to physically come in direct contact with either the Christ altar of burnt offering or the flesh of the sin offering in order to become automatically clean or holy. And they certainly did not become a cleanness or a holiness host. Disease and divine uncleanness are contagious conditions, like COVID, but holiness is not. Both scripture and creation testify to this identification between sin and disease. However, the limitation is that this sin identification is not transgressional sin. Suggesting a direct identification between transgressional sin and disease would imply that the false doctrine of exact retribution would be legitimate. And that would that would invalidate the entire book of Job, as well as the ministry of Jesus. There are physical effects due to sin, but those physical effects are not necessarily prompted by one's transgressional sins. If that were the case, then repentance would be a component of those disease recovery atonement rituals of, of leprosy recovery and bodily issue recovery and physical contact with death. But no repentance was demanded by God in those rituals. The sin identification with disease is limited to that cleansing component of atonement and not the forgiveness component of atonement. This relationship between the principle of sin and the physical effects of sin will be that fourth divine dispensation educational focus that will be emphasized in the millennial kingdom, which is also the aspect of physical holiness, not simply behavioral holiness. Now let's go back to that prophecy of the chaining of the four sin icons in the bottomless pit for the thousand-year kingdom by uh, the laws of God. Due to the chaining of the previously unrestrained operation of sin, uh, due to the magnifying of God's kingdom laws, we, we will see a Sabbath-like rest from the physical, the oppressive physical effects of sin during that 1,000-year restraining of sin in the bottomless pit, which is a validation of our understanding of the divinely appointed relationship between sin and the physical effects of sin. Uh, there are a number of prophecies about the restraining of the physical applications of the curse of sin and death during this Sabbath kingdom. Oh, I'm sure we know a lot of these by heart, but Isaiah 2 uh, many people shall go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk 
in the pa- in his paths from Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he shall judge among many uh, among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore due to the law of God issuing from Jerusalem which will rebuke many people Military academies are going to be shuttered. West Point, Annapolis, the Air Force Academy in Colorado, the military training centers around the world will all close as war will not be learned anymore. The world will have have a rest from war when the operating power of sin, that Diabolos effect, is restrained by kingdom laws, that chain that binds Satan, the devil, the serpent, the dragon, in the bottomless pit. Well, we also read of biological changes in animal life in Isaiah 11. We read the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Dangerous carnivorous beasts will become herbivores. Lambs and calves will not fear in the presence of their former hunters, like wolves and lions and bears. It is the knowledge of Yahweh the knowledge of God's righteousness resulting from the magnification of the law, making it honorable, that will facilitate these changes in the natural order. And this is what we, we're told in verse 9 of this same chapter. Um, it says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Notice the direct relationship. Why there will be no hurting or destroying? Because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. This is to be accomplished by magnifying the law and making it honorable. Uh, We also read uh, in Isaiah 65 that when God establishes that new heaven and new earth, which, which will be the second, as the first kingdom of God was defined in exactly those same terms of heaven and earth in both its its creation and its destruction, uh, when that kingdom is restored, crib deaths are going to end. Isaiah 65, There shall be no more thence in infinite days, nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. So we also learn from this prophecy that mortal life will be extended, but death will still be part of the creation order, that that new natural order. A man dying at 100 years old will be considered only a child in the context of his life expectancy. While this is not the circumcision-like cutting away of sin and the effects of sin scheduled for the eighth millennium, this is definitely a Sabbath-like rest from the physical effects of sin in the seventh divine day 
of our Creator's plan. And by the way, isn't, isn't that a phrase we now hear endlessly? The new normal, of course in reference to the societal changes resulting from the coronavirus pandemic. Well, in the second kingdom age, there will be yet another new normal, and it will be vastly different due to the restraining of sin through the education and enforcement of the laws and rituals of the kingdom of God that will be made honorable uh, to highlight the righteousness of God. There will be a restraining of sin, which will result in a restraining of the oppressive physical effects of sin. As a result of Adam's sin, the ground was cursed. God declared to Adam, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall, shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat it, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to the ground. But when sin is restrained by the promotion of the knowledge of God by kingdom law, there will be a similar restraining of this agricultural curse. Agricultural bounty will accelerate. We, one of these places we read these prophecies is in Amos 9, uh, verse 13. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that sows seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt, and I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities, and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards, and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens, and eat the fruit of them. This second sin application uh, will be the primary, but, but certainly not the exclusive, educational focus for this fourth divine dispensation. It is this second aspect of sin, the unclean sin nature that resulted from Adam's transgressional sin, that production vehicle for transgressional sin that brought with it the oppressive physical effects of that second aspect of sin. They will be completely eliminated in the salvation procedure, the, the immortalization process, that substance of the atonement that is shadowed in the rituals and laws from that first kingdom age. Therefore, God most certainly will restore that bloody animal altar offering as the primary forgiveness ritual, replacing the baptism ritual. Now let's address the repetitive as opposed to singular application of these two forgiveness rituals. Why is the baptism forgiveness ritual only performed once? But the first and second kingdom ages, the forgiveness ritual for the sin altar offering uh, has and will be repeated over and over and over. We should understand the basis by which the baptism ritual offers that forgiveness component. When we are baptized, when we participate in the divinely ordained ritual, identifying our choice to serve the Creator as opposed to serving sin, projecting that same second calling stage as the blood of the sin offering uh, was smeared on the four horns of the altar, that calling 
to commitment after we have responded to the universal call to enlightenment. We're then baptized into the death of our Savior. We've read this so many times. Romans chapter 6. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. As repeated over and over, that our participation in the baptism ritual is an identification with the death of Jesus Christ. Paul uses the agricultural terminology of being planted together, um, similar to how Paul defends God's truth about the resurrection to the Christadelphians at Corinth when he parallels the process of the death of the seed in order to develop a fruit-bearing plant. Uh, as he parallels that to the resurrection procedure. It is this identification with death in baptism that's the key to understanding why all past sins are forgiven. Because death is God's answer for sin. Death could never have preceded sin. As death is the wages of sin. And this is why death was the judgment for Adam's sin. The previously undying nature of Adam and Eve was changed to certain death and the decay that would lead to that death. This is Paul's exhortation in Romans 6 that, well, since we have died to sin, that we should no longer live to sin. This direct association between sin and death is why those animal sin offerings under the laws of the first kingdom of age had to die and then be incinerated on that Christ altar of burnt offering. It's why those who broke the stone covenant, those ten commandments um, engraved on stone by the finger of God, had to be broken by stones themselves, to be stoned to death for idol worship and Sabbath violations and blasphemy and theft and adultery. When we are buried with Christ in baptism, we identify ourselves directly with the God-reconciling death of Jesus. In that simulated death, it is that death identification that automatically eliminates the guilt of all our previous sins. As Paul says, for he that is dead is freed from sin. However, it should be understood that uh, the forgiveness capacity in baptism does not apply to any future sins. But there's also a limiting factor in understanding the forgiveness aspect of the animal altar offering also. That sin offering was not exclusively a ritual that afforded forgiveness. It was and will also be an educational procedure in relation 
to the basis for forgiveness and an educational procedure in relation to the terms of God's righteousness, his rightness. We should remember the basic observation that we made in understanding all divinely required rituals. They are physical demonstrations of divine principles. They serve as earthly shadows of heavenly substance. Rituals are a snapshot of the beginning and the final result in the Creator's plan. That that very first verse in Scripture uh, declares, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Now, over those six evenings and mornings of creation, God and the angels developed an earthly expression of divine principles. And it was all very good. But then man corrupted that harmony between earthly and heavenly through the introduction of sin. Earth and heaven were no longer in harmony. It is at the point in the eighth divine day when the last enemy will be eliminated, which is death. And then the Creator will be all in all. We read this in 1 Corinthians 15, picking up at verse 24. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.